Hi, I'm Jacqueline Kinser, and for the past five years, I've been helping families all around the globe to overcome their breastfeeding challenges. And this is the first non-clinical breastfeeding podcast that shows you how to rock breastfeeding and master motherhood through practical tips, mindset shifts, and honest conversation to create a confident and empowering breastfeeding journey. This is the Breastfeeding Talk Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Breastfeeding Talk, Milk Motherhood Mindset. I'm your host, Jacqueline Kinser, and I am here to do another edition of This Week in Breastfeeding. So today is February 26th, 2021. I actually ended up skipping the podcast for last week, one, because I didn't find a whole lot of interesting news to share with you all, Uh, and two, uh, I live here in Phoenix, Arizona, and my allergies flare up really bad this time of year with uh, our super high pollen counts of things that I'm highly allergic to. So you probably didn't want to hear my sniffly nose on the podcast. Uh, But now I'm back at it today. I actually had to go through tons of uh, news articles that came out this past week, uh, in addition to the ones from last week. And there's so so much good stuff to share. So I'm actually really excited to dive in. Uh, So the first one I'm going to start with is uh, a study that came out uh, called Black slash African American Breastfeeding Experience, Cultural, Sociological, and Health Dimensions Through an Equity Lens. Uh, I'm really, really glad this study is being done because Black Breastfeeding rates are much lower uh, than any other ethnic groups out there. Uh, actually, even in this, uh, the background of the study, they say that only 42% of infants in the world and 25.6% of infants in the United States are exclusively breastfed for the first six months of life. Uh, in 2019, the infants least likely to be exclusively breastfed at six months are African Americans, and they had an exclusive breastfeeding rate uh, at six months of 17.2%. So that is a lot less and hugely concerning. So Really what the study did was just acknowledge that there are lots of challenges uh, specifically summarizing cultural, such as family peers, community support, misconceptions, personal factors, prejudices, racism, home environment, financial status, sexuality issues, breastfeeding role models, and employment policies, as well as just a lot of things going on in the healthcare system in terms of, you know, uh, timely and honest information from staff, postnatal follow-up, all of that combined contributes to lower rates of breastfeeding for African-American women. So we've got a long ways to go, (laughs) unfortunately. Um, And I did a great, great episode uh, a while back last year on the podcast with Maxine Robinson uh, about this because she has worked in public health for a long time. She's also an IBCLC and she is, you know, a black mother out there supporting other black mothers. And unfortunately, you know, racism and all these other issues are still hugely problematic when it comes to supporting families in breastfeeding. So I'll link that up for anyone who's interested. Um, now, I'm going to spend quite a bit of time on this one. Uh, this is an article from The Guardian, and the headline is, Am I Going to Regret It? Forever Chemicals Dilemma for Breastfeeding Mothers. Uh, 
Uh, it's actually a very long and well-written article. So if you want to dive into this topic more, I absolutely encourage you to do so. It's sort of along the lines of uh, the Aaron Brockovich story uh, and things like that, where the discussion is about uh, chemicals that are in drinking water or you know uh, other foods, and they come into our bodies. And what is the impact of that when we are breastfeeding our children? Uh, and so there's a lot of evidence that these chemicals get into mother's milk and then into the baby, and we're seeing it show up in tests of these babies and later on into adulthood as well. So mainly this article is concerned with uh, PFAS. They're, I'm probably not even going to say this right, perfluoralkyl substances. They're often referred to as forever chemicals, meaning they really don't go away. These are things that are used to uh, produce things like Teflon coatings and other stain and water-resistant products. And these have been linked by scientists to serious diseases. So uh, there's a main compound of PFAS called PFOA, which is perfluorooctanoic acid, and that's typically found in drinking water. So there's this uh, mother, Marianne Jacobs. Uh, basically, she lives in a small town called Hosick Falls in upstate New York, uh, borders Vermont and Massachusetts, and she found out uh, that her baby son, Oliver, uh, he had some serum test results done with some very high levels of these compounds in his blood. So uh, she actually tells the story, or it's told the story in the article about how she became pregnant with Oliver after she was alerted to this being in the drinking water. So she didn't drink the drinking water while she was pregnant or breastfeeding, but she was aware that because, you know, these chemicals were already in her body, they would likely pass to him through her womb. And uh, she ended up breastfeeding him for 24 months, and he had really, really, really high levels, uh, actually 100 times the national average. Now, this is a really important discussion to have because I don't want anyone to take that sentence and go, oh my gosh, breastfeeding's bad. <laughs> First of all, you know, unless you know your own personal concentrations of these chemicals, um, you know, there, there's a lot of things to consider for sure. Um, so it's obviously, you know, really con concerning. And this mother felt like she was doing the healthiest thing possible for her child. And then now she's just wracked with guilt because she's realizing he has really, really high concentrations of these chemicals, which clearly leached from her body into her breast milk. And then, you know, her son consumed those and now they're in his body. And and she actually talks about how his teeth are decaying and they're cracked and the doctors don't seem to know why it is. And she's afraid it's because he drank her breast milk. So that's really scary and really concerning. Now, what this article does a really good job of, of doing is, is talking about that you know, women are basically left with an impossible choice. Um, they actually estimate that across all 49 states in the United States, that more than 200 million Americans drinking water could be contaminated with some level of PFOA or PFOS. Uh, so those are two in a family of those PFAS compounds. Uh, and they're widely used to make hundreds of products. So in these communities, you know, mothers are really concerned about, you know, should I breastfeed? Should I not? Uh, and that's a really, really tough question to, to tackle because it's not just a question of those chemicals, 
right? It's a question of all of the wonderful immune benefits and, and genetic benefits and all the other health benefits that we know that have been proven time and time again across population-based studies that the outcomes of children who are breast milk fed or breastfed versus formula fed are much better. And obviously, whether or not it was specifically accounted for, if, you know, most of the United States population has these chemicals in their drinking water and is exposed to them, and we're still seeing better outcomes with children who have been breastfed, then despite that, we're we're still seeing that there's health benefits to breastfeeding. But this particular situation of this mother and baby these concentrations are super, super high. They may be much higher than the national, well, they are much higher than the national average. So in that case, you know, is breastfeeding a good idea for this mother and this baby? And so that's, that's really difficult. And, and the article does a really great job of summarizing sort of the history of things, uh, and you know, the, the toxicity levels, Um, and there's another mother they talk about where uh, her local family doctor actually urged her not to breastfeed because of this. So uh, basically they tested her daughter's blood when she was seven weeks old, uh, and it it still had really high uh, parts per trillion of these chemicals, and the mother said, if I had breastfed, I can't even imagine how much worse it could have been. So, you know, this mother felt like along with her physician that she made an informed decision to not breastfeed her child to reduce this chemical exposure that was already happening by virtue of being pregnant with the child. She didn't want to make it worse through breastfeeding. And I think that's actually totally understandable. Uh, And so the article goes on to state, you know, we really don't have enough research on this topic, which is absolutely 100% true. We don't have enough information to make a really good risk-benefit analysis, and that's really, really, you know, important to know. Um, There's a lot of things like that in the world of breastfeeding where we just don't have enough information to make an informed decision, and so, you know, we're doing the best that we can. Now, there is some evidence that, you know, breastfeeding for shorter durations of time, they're saying like three to four months and then stopping will give those primary immune benefits, but then limit the longer duration exposure, you know, to these PFAS chemicals. So, you know, I don't know that there's any evidence to support that, but that's what these researchers and physicians are leaning towards recommending in towns that are, you know, specifically experiencing super, super high levels. Uh, because once they've gotten, once these chemicals have gotten into your system, uh, you know, they're, they, they don't fully leave. And so that's obviously very problematic. Um, now there's some evidence that, you know, these chemicals in high concentrations affect immune function. They affect liver function, all sorts of things, right? So it's definitely something we want to be careful about. Now, when I was reading this article, I thought, okay, well, I want to see, you know, what's a similar comparison can we find? What's the concentration of these chemicals in formula? Uh, generally, we're not preparing formula in any sort of, you know, Teflon containers or anything like that, um, but they do come in various containers and what have you. And I found a really, really, really awesome review 
that I'll link up for you. You can read the full text of this. Uh, it's from Environmental Health Perspectives. Uh, it's from 2018, so it's actually fairly recent. I like that. It's called Environmental Chemicals in Breast Milk and Formula, Exposure and Risk Assessment Implications. So basically, you know, I won't bore you with all the details. You can you can read it yourself if you're interested. But they went through, you know, as many studies as they could find about, you know, these, uh, you know, chemicals in breast milk and formula and trying to look at, you know, what's, what's better or worse here, basically. And so they compiled a list. They did look at the PFAS. Uh, they looked at phthalates. They looked at parabens. They looked at metals. They looked at, you know, just, I mean, all sorts of things, right? So I actually like that they looked at something more than just PFAS. So that was actually really good. Um, and they, basically at the end of the day say, you know, there's, there's some things like PFAS, you know, that show higher concentrations in breast milk, uh, and, and lower ones in formula. And then there's other things like, you know, uh, arsenic is one, you know, that can have some fairly high levels in formula. Um, I didn't spend a whole lot of time reading into each specific category to be honest about, you know, phthalates and phenols and parabens and, uh, you know, there's metals, uh, you know, volatile, organic compounds. I mean, there's, there's a lot there, but you can look at it for yourself. Um, at the end of the day, I think that you can, I I reviewed this and, and read the entire article and I felt like it's, it's sort of a wash. Like, I don't know if one's better than the other. Uh, in fact, I would lean more towards breast milk based on what they were saying. And I, I think they really approached it from a very unbiased view, to be honest. Um, and they did point out some really good considerations, some scientific considerations that we need to take into account. Uh, so it said, one, uh, that infant dietary exposure can be assessed using chemical concentrations in breast milk or formula in combinations with estimates of breast milk or formula consumption rates. Yes, this is true. But when estimating infant exposures based on chemical concentrations in breast milk, it is important to assume that the chemical concentration is constant in human milk throughout the breastfeeding period. However, chemicals in breast milk have varying pharmacokinetic properties. Some are persistent with physiologic half-lives of up to years, whereas others are transient with half-lives in humans of hours, days, or weeks. Even for persistent chemicals, it can be challenging to predict trends in breast milk levels during lactation. And they actually have four studies that they cite, um, you know, with that statement there. And then it says, in addition, when exposure estimates are calculated on a lipid-adjusted basis, e.g. for lipophilic chemicals, lipophilic chemicals, however you want to say that, uncertainty is introduced by the lipid content correction because the lipid content of human milk changes across the duration of breastfeeding and even over the course of a single feeding. So essentially what they're saying is that formula is a constant, right? And and we can measure, you know, the leaching of chemicals from the bottles or the can or whatever in formula. It's going to be a constant rate, the water that it's prepared with. And we know it's constant. With breast milk, there is no constant, not even from, you know, the beginning of the feeding to the end of the feeding. And so to measure these breast milk samples is actually really problematic because we're not doing it long-term. So we don't really have any data long-term and we don't know what the different factors are because physiology is so individual. So we can make some guesses uh, and they talk about basically modeling to estimate chemicals in breast milk. Um, But 
you know, this is actually really, really hard to pin down. So I really appreciate, you know, essentially that they said that and really their conclusion at the end of this was that we need so much more research done uh, and that comparisons between chemical exposure levels and reference values are only a small element of a larger process of risk-based decision-making. And I think I think it was on a, a previous episode of This Week in Breastfeeding where I talked about how, you know, uh, that families that are, you know, have a fair amount of privilege that are, you know, living in a wealthier country with, you know, adequate access to health care, you know, the, the difference between breastfeeding and formula is much smaller than a family that lives in a third world country or is severely socioeconomically disadvantaged. There, the difference between breast milk and formula is gigantic, and that baby being fed breast milk could mean all the difference for its lifetime and, you know, its progeny and their future generations. So there's a lot to take into consideration in terms of, of risk and exposure. Uh, way more research needs to be done, obviously, on this front. Uh, and actually, it's been problematic that we haven't kept up with research about PFAS and, and other chemicals like that in drinking water and what have you for a very long time. Uh, there was a hint in the Guardian article actually about how the Biden administration here in the United States is actually making these kinds of environmental research topics a priority. And I think that'd be really great to fund more of that research uh, so that we can minimize exposure and impact or pretend potentially do something to ameliorate the effects of the exposure of these chemicals. So anyway, Basically, yes, there are lots of chemicals that can get into your breast milk. There are also lots of chemicals that can to get into formula. Uh, and how does this affect us throughout the lifespan? Well, we honestly really don't know. Uh, we do know that, uh, you know, once the exposure ceases, the serum levels in the blood decrease. Um, but what are the lifelong effects there? It's hard to say. So more studies definitely need to be done, which is really what most studies end up concluding, by the way, if you're not familiar with reading a lot of studies. Um, that's just the way it is. Now, on the same topic, different article from Baby Gaga. Uh, they kind of just interviewed some experts and things, and the headline here is, your body will produce good breast milk even if your diet isn't perfect. <laughs> so uh, basically what they're trying to do here, I think, is, is very valid. They're trying to basically state that, you know, you don't need to maintain a perfect diet to produce, you know, good quality breast milk for your child. And I agree with that statement. Uh, and really, they go back to here a broader view talking about looking at studies based on population, recommendations of the American Academy of Pediatrics, that we still know that research has proven that breastfeeding protects the mother and her baby from a variety of illnesses, you know, asthma, obesity, diabetes, cancer, ear infections, SIDS, gastrointestinal infections, respiratory diseases, you name it. So really, you know, unless your your breast milk is, you know, tainted with illicit drugs or, or something that really shouldn't be in there to begin with, uh, or in anyone's body to begin with, all breast milk is good breast milk is, is really what they're saying. And I would, I would agree with that for the most part, you know, but I would say that it's easy to take population-based data and try and apply that to every single person, but we can't do that. That's unfair. So like the case of, you know, 
this poor family in, in that article from the Guardian, where you know they live in this small town that was you know racked by industry, you know dumping chemicals into the water supply there, the river, the groundwater, you name it. You know that's a unique situation. Should they be well? First of all, they shouldn't even be drinking the water, but they they weren't aware of that, right? So hopefully, there's some sort of class action lawsuit that's that's going on or has happened there. Uh, but two, you know, maybe breastfeeding is not the healthiest choice for that particular family. So again, just you know, take these things into account. But I like the Baby Gaga article that's a little more relaxed of a feel, basically saying that being paranoid about everything and being perfect and having this perfect diet, one, isn't healthy no matter what stage of life you're in, uh, but two, uh, sp- particularly when you're postpartum and breastfeeding, you know, really try to try to eat you know, whole foods, be well nourished, uh, add in supplements if you, if you need them, you know, work with your healthcare providers and your team there to figure out what's the best approach for you. But, you know, if you have some McDonald's fries one day, you don't need to pump and dump. Okay. So I think that's basically what they're trying to say. Uh, and now, you know, let's continue on this topic, actually, since we're on it. Uh, this is from Healthline Parenthood, and it's uh, a, an article that came out. Is it safe to take Zoloft while breastfeeding? Uh, you know, this is always an interesting question. I, I get this question a lot as a lactation consultant, obviously. Uh, is it safe? Well, you know, safety is relative, like we just discussed. And, you know, is it safe to take Zoloft while breastfeeding? Well, Yes, relatively, yes, it's safe in that, you know, it's uh, it's not going to cause, you know, immediate harm or, or anything like that to you or your baby, most likely. Uh, definitely not to the baby, but, you know, there there's some risks you might want to consider. So Zoloft, if you're not familiar, it's a drug that uh, can be used at any stage of life, uh, really, but postpartum specifically, it's for uh, treating depression, OCD, or panic attacks, um, and it's it's not specifically approved for postpartum depression, but it is approved for for depression. It's also helpful for treating PTSD. So, um, you know, you're actually, as far as I know, they don't really uh, actually mention it in this article because the article is about breastfeeding. But as far as I'm aware of, you're not supposed to take breast or Zoloft when you're pregnant. So, uh, you know, there's different standards for pregnancy and breastfeeding, obviously. Now, what they did say is that, yes, Zoloft does pass into your breast milk. Uh, There's more research that's needed, but currently we know that levels of the drug actually peak in your breast milk about eight to nine hours after a dose. Uh, And generally it's considered safe, but we also have to consider the ramifications of you not taking the medication. So if you have untreated depression or anxiety or, or other issues, um, that may lead you to become suicidal or experience other serious health consequences, we have to take that into account. Maybe it's safer for you to be on the drug than not the drug. Um, and so what we don't want is any sort of stigma happening to people who are experiencing mental illness to feel like they now can't take medications to manage their symptoms uh, because they're worried about you know providing breast milk for their baby. We don't want you to feel like you have to choose between one or the other, and I think this article does a good job of stating that. Um, there are obviously huge po- positive benefits of breastfeeding on your mental health, uh, your baby's mental health. So uh, you know, nutrition-wise, health-wise, all of that too. But you know, huge, huge, huge. Um, they do talk about a potential side effect of Zoloft, which is that you could experience a slight decrease in milk production. Um, and then they're quick to state that this is generally correctable with increased feeds or pumping between feeds. 
Yes, that is true. I've worked with many, many families uh, and many parents who are breastfeeding that have been on Zoloft, and I have not seen a decrease in their milk production. So that's really good. That's just sort of anecdotal, clinical-based observation, but it could potentially decrease it, but not to a level that would be concerning and it's easily correctable. Uh, So there are obviously other side effects for you as the parent, That's important to take into account. It also does have a a so-called black box warning on it. Um, So if you are taking this drug and you experience suicidal thoughts, you need to contact your provider immediately. Uh, And your family should be aware that you're taking this drug and look out for any signs of that as well. Um, So it's, you know, when we talk about safety, (laughs) um, you know, is any drug really particularly safe? You know, um, there's always some sort of effect that it has on you and you just have to weigh those risks and benefits. So I'll link that up in the show notes for you as well. Uh, Now, moving on to this one, it's from Frontiers in Pediatrics. Uh, It's their neonatology section, and it says, uh, it's a journal article here, promoting and protecting human milk and breastfeeding in a COVID-19 world. And really, this might be more something for the lactation consultants who like to listen to this podcast, but really awesome article, just talking about, you know, the recommendations of the World Health Organization when it comes to breastfeeding uh, and how you know, these things are not necessarily happening in the clinical setting. Um, So unfortunately, you know, with, you know, limited visitation of parents to infants and NICUs, uh, you know, visitors, you know, in the hospital or birthing setting, um, I know that there are some hospitals that don't allow lactation consultants to see COVID-positive patients. Unfortunately, there are many that do. So there's just been less access to care. Uh, there's been a huge change and change in just, you know, maternity practices and, and perinatal care in general. So it's frustrating. Um, it's very frustrating. Uh, and then they talk about SARS-CoV-2 and its presence in human milk. Uh, we haven't really seen infectious virus, you know, being transmitted through breast milk to babies. So that's really good. We have seen antibodies from both natural infection of the mother and vaccination of the mother that go through the breast milk into the baby. So that's really great. But the impact of this pandemic on breastfeeding mothers has been really big and unfortunately quite negative. So There's a lot more that we could do here, and I'm really glad that they're discussing this. Um, They're also talking about donor milk and how it should go through pasteurization to ensure that, you know, we're we're limiting any viral transmission or exposure through human human milk and, and things of that nature. So they did a really good job of just outlining the challenges and sort of needs worldwide Uh, when it comes to breastfeeding. And, you know, since this pandemic is obviously worldwide, it's great to take that global perspective into account. Now, along those same lines, uh, most news these days involves COVID-19, unfortunately. Uh, But this is uh, from February 18th, 2021. uh, And it's from Helio.com. And it says, study affirms that mothers with COVID-19 should not be separated from newborns. Uh, So I'm really glad to see this backed up. I felt very strongly from the beginning of the pandemic that infants should not be separated from mothers. Um, But, you know, there wasn't really enough evidence to say one way or another, you know, what was best. Um, But 
They state here, temporarily separating mothers with confirmed or suspected COVID-19 from their newborns and disrupting skin-to-skin care, rooming in, and direct breastfeeding was associated with harm and may be unnecessary. So this is from the COVID Mothers Study. So I'm glad to see this. Um, I'll link it up if you want to get into the nitty-gritty details, but I think, honestly, the headline basically covers it. Um, It's just very... What they did do a good job also of pointing out was not just the health outcomes, but the impact on the mother, that uh, most mothers felt very upset or distressed because they were separated from their infants. Um, And, you know, despite trying, they were often unable to breastfeed their child after being reunited. And that's huge. That's huge. Um, Mothers and newborns were separated an average of six to seven days. So that is a critical time right after birth for your baby to have the skills of breastfeeding sort of imprinted in their brain, in their motor skills. And if they are missing out on that, uh, it's it's really, really substantially going to negatively affect breastfeeding, and that's really, really unfortunate. So, um, you know, I'm glad they brought that up because it's important that we have practices in the healthcare setting uh, where we're not just treating COVID-19 positive or suspected COVID-19 positive uh, mothers as sort of lepers <laughs> because they're not, and they deserve you know, just the same, if not better care than someone who is not positive for that. Uh, Case in point, actually, I had a a patient recently uh, who birthed uh, locally to me, and she said that she was COVID positive two weeks before giving birth. Um, At the time of giving birth, you know, she had no no signs of disease, or rather she was SARS-CoV-2 positive. She did have COVID-19, but she had no signs of the disease at the time of giving birth and what have you. But she was like, just at the last day of that two-week period, where we're kind of concerned about quarantining and what have you. And she was treated horribly by the hospital staff. And I do have friends that work in the hospital, not even in lactation, just other areas of the hospital. And they've said, yes, that's generally true, that there is an assumption made by a lot of people that work in the hospital, unfortunately, that you got COVID because you were being irresponsible. Um, I think that that's really sad because I don't believe that that's how most people end up getting COVID. Um, I don't know that for sure, but certainly not all people get COVID by being irresponsible and going to bars and partying it up. Certainly not a pregnant woman who's about to give birth. Um, In fact, she's a physician herself, and so she likely got it from work. Uh, And so I just thought, gosh, that's really unfortunate to hear that she had such a poor experience. I'm sure that's not the case at every hospital, um, but apparently there's, you know, that bias seeping in amongst many healthcare workers where they are treating COVID-positive patients or suspected covid patients uh, very, very poorly, and that is obviously going to hinder any sort of good postpartum outcome. So now, um, this is interesting. This came up in my news feed yesterday from February 25th, 2021. Um, It's linked up a bunch of places, but I'm going to specifically link up this one I found in uh, the New York Post. So you can look on nypost.com, and I'll have that in the show notes for you. But uh, there's going to be a commercial from the Freedom Mom Company. And it's going to, they had a, I believe it was last year. I should have looked this up, but they had an article about postpartum. And uh, it was just, they have some postpartum products that they sell, and they were advertising those, and they showed the real sort of trials and tribulations of what it's like to be a newly postpartum mom. 
And now they've got a commercial showing uh, lactating breasts uh, that's going to air during the Golden Globes. And they are set to uh, show the struggles of breastfeeding. And I think the commercial, from what I could tell, is very well done. And they're showing, you know, things like clogged ducts and uh, breast pain and things like that. And they've got some products that they're selling to treat those. The thing that kind of, you know, annoys me a little bit is that these products aren't anything new to the market. They're just new to this company. So, you know, these are things lactation consultants have been recommending for, you know, decades, right, in terms of treating some various lactation problems. Um, But they're coming out with a new line of products, and I think some of them, I think they're totally fine. You know, I'm not here to advertise their, their things or anything like that. Um, I haven't tried them out, and I haven't had any clients try them out because these are new, so, you know, I have no, you know, opinion on them either way, but they look like they're probably decent. Um, But I will say that it's a little bit frustrating to see an ad like this because, you know, showing a mother who's uh, unlatching her baby because, you know, she's experiencing painful breastfeeding, you know, while it's great to have some sort of a nipple cream or a pad or, or some product to put on the nipple to soothe it, uh, we really want to make sure that moms aren't thinking that a product is going to solve that for them. So a product is going to treat the symptoms, uh, maybe aid in healing and whatnot, but the reason that the pain occurs still needs to be addressed. And so we can't ignore that. Um, and I, I wish that product companies would do a better job of, you know, letting people know that instead of just acting like their product is going to be the fix all. Um, but hopefully everyone who sees the commercial is smart enough to know it. And I would say kudos to you, Freedom Mom, for really just, uh, you know, bringing attention to this important issue of the struggles that many women have when they're breastfeeding and, um, you know, the, the despair. Uh, I think it did a good job of capturing the emotional despair that a lot of moms feel. So um, there's that. Speaking of products, (laughs) here's another one. Um, This is just a a press release um, that came out yesterday, February 25th, from Metalac Laboratories. uh, They've now created their first uh, shelf-stable donor milk with preterm milk protein levels. So this is really important. There's been other shelf-stable human milk um, products on the market. Um, Very expensive but wonderful when we need them for especially vulnerable babies or for families that want to get access to human donor milk. Uh, And so what's interesting about this one is it's specifically for preterm babies or preemie babies. Um, and we know that human milk feeding reduces, you know, infection occurrence, um, and improves gastric emptying, improves their gut health, um, you know, so many amazing benefits for donor milk when, you know, the mother's own milk is not available. So generally the problem here with giving donor milk to preemies has been that most of the donor milk that's been collected is from a later stage of lactation. So it has a lot less protein than preterm milk. So now they've created this donor milk um, that has a higher protein level, and uh, so they, they're matching the protein fat levels in in a preterm infant mother's own milk. So that's really great. Glad to hear that. Um, this will be something that you know hospitals will have to obviously get, um, but it's great to see that we're seeing some better outcomes there and advocacy for human milk. So yay for that. Um, 
one article here I'll share with you. It's from Romper. I don't always love their articles, but they have uh, one here. What you need to know about eating your spicy faves and breastfeeding. Um, and basically just saying how spicy foods, sometimes the flavor can travel through breast milk, um, especially if it's something spicy or something like garlic. Um, and, you know, your baby may very well enjoy that, actually. Um, if you ate spicy foods during pregnancy, those flavors could go into your amniotic fluid and your baby's drinking that while they're in the womb and they're tasting that. And so babies generally like a variety of flavors. Um, now, what they do a good job of answering in this article and why I really like it and, and why I've contributed to some of their articles is uh, they address, can spicy foods make your baby feel bad? So what about fussiness or gassiness that some moms report happening to their baby after feeding? Uh, and they really do a good job of saying that's very unlikely that spicy foods have anything to do with that. Um, so in most cases, with very few exceptions, the foods that cause stomach discomfort in the mother do not affect the breast milk composition or change the way the baby digests and reacts to the milk. So really, really glad that, um, you know, we've cleared that up. Uh, gas, if you're not aware is really just caused by the gut bacteria and breaking down foods in the gut, especially more fibrous foods. So, um, you know, the gas doesn't travel, nor does the fiber to the to the bloodstream or to the milk. So if, if you're gassy, your gassiness doesn't get into your blood and then into your milk. Um, I had a mother asked me a question, and there's no stupid questions, by the way, um, but she said, does drinking soda water... Um, that carbonation caused her baby to be gassy. And I wanted to remind her that that air, if those air bubbles got from the soda water from your stomach into your digestive system, then you would be dead um, because you can't have just air traveling through your blood um, and your blood, your milk is made from your blood. So the answer is no. Um, so it's just really important. Sometimes, you know, there's just this simplification of like what goes in your body must automatically go into your baby's body. And that's not really true. Um, and then the other thing they actually addressed was, you know, just, you know, the body's ability of breaking down food proteins, right? So it's really proteins that tend to be problematic. So, you know, people blame lactose for a lot of issues, but lactose is hugely prevalent in human milk. So it's just a milk sugar. It's not a milk protein. So, um, you know, milk proteins like casein and whatnot are usually more problematic and, and far more problematic than, you know, something like a spicy food. So, um, they actually cited a 2001 study in the journal Pediatrics that found that babies who had been exposed to a flavor in utero, in utero or while breastfeeding were more likely to like that flavor when they were weaned. So your baby might like a larger variety of foods if you eat a large variety of foods while you're breastfeeding. All right, now let's liven it up a little bit. Um, here's some celebrity gossip. Um, I have not heard about the singer Ciara in quite a while. Um, I've liked some of her songs. I don't know if she has anything recent. Uh, this is this is my old millennial self talking here. I have no idea if she has anything new. Um, but this is uh, from yesterday, Thursday, February 25th. And I guess that Ciara gave birth seven months ago, and she is married to Russell Wilson, who is a Seattle Seahawks quarterback. And he was joking. Um, not sure how much he was actually joking, though, that uh, it's time for her to stop breastfeeding their baby. So uh, he is quoted as saying, 
I said, it's time, time to give it up. I mean, he's old enough. His nutrition is good. It's time. You're being selfish now at this point. No more late nights. It's you and I. And then his wife, Ciara, responded, he needs his nutrition. Let me feed. So um, I guess I'll go along with the idea that they're joking, but all jokes have some element of truth. And clearly he's feeling like breastfeeding is taking something away from him. Um, And I think if we're going to say that anyone's being selfish here, it would be Russell. He's being really selfish um, because breastfeeding is recommended Um, you know, until at least the age of one by the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, by the American Academy of Pediatrics, the World Health Organization recommends until age two. So, you know, he's basically advocating for early weaning for his benefit. And I'm glad that Ciara stood her ground in this interview. That's wonderful. Uh, And the article is featured in Yahoo Sports. They actually did a good job of you know, just discussing the benefits of breastfeeding and uh, everything like that. So, you know, it was it was actually a pretty balanced article at the end of the day, and that's really good. I'm glad that we saw that. Um, here's something really interesting uh, for anybody out there who has lupus, uh, or you if you know someone who has lupus and they're going to be breastfeeding. This is really really relevant. This uh, came out from the Lupus Foundation of America. They cite a new study where uh, women breastfed longer when treated with hydroxychloroquine before, during, and after pregnancy. Now, everyone at this point has basically heard of hydroxychloroquine because it was early on debated um, for its use in treating COVID-19, um, but it's it's uh, an excellent pharmaceutical for treating uh patients with lupus. What they found in the study was that women with lupus are more likely to breastfeed their child for less time than healthy women. So it's really important that we're encouraging women with, with women with lupus to breastfeed as long as possible um, because actually women who breastfed longer up to six months saw more stable lupus disease activity. Um, But they actually think that some of that may be due to the beneficial effects of hydroxychloroquine on the mother and the child. So, um, you know, it, basically good outcomes with using hydroxychloroquine treatment for lupus during postpartum, and it can improve breastfeeding duration, which prevents disease flare-up and neonatal complications. So something to discuss with your physician, but um, looks like some good results from that. Now I'm going to share, we're, we're kind of going to wrap up here soon. Uh, I'm going to get share this awesome, awesome op-ed uh, from Lindsay Rice, and this is in the Montgomery Advisor. And the headline is Legislative Breastfeeding Bill, A Good Start, But Not Nearly Enough for Working Mothers. I'm going to share this. I encourage you to read this piece in its entirety. It's not very long, um, but she's... uh, She states she's a trained doula and a certified lactation counselor, and she's deputy director of a reproductive justice organization. So there's uh, the state legislature, (laughs) the state legislature, there we go, that's a tongue twister, sort of, uh, is uh, focusing on increasing Alabama women's ability to successfully breastfeed babies, and they're saying that they're looking at some workplace accommodations, uh, but she's really saying that it's not enough. Because the the language is that they require employers to offer a quote-unquote reasonable unpaid time for a mother to pump and make quote-unquote reasonable efforts to provide an adequate place to pump. 
but it lacks the enforcement necessary to hold these employers accountable. Uh, And it really doesn't address the additional needs of working mothers. So basically, instead of offering additional breaks that are paid for mothers to provide this amazing nutrition for their babies, they have to consume their lunch, use the restroom, check on family affairs, accomplish all the other tasks that are usually reserved for any regular employees' break times, and in addition, pump during those times, which is kind of crazy. So there's also language in there in this bill apparently that states that employers shall not be required to provide break time if to do so would unreasonably disrupt the operations. Um, so that's really terrible. Um, I second what Lindsay says, which is that she believes that breastfeeding mothers deserve increased breaks for pumping milk, breaks that are longer than those mandated already for employees. Let me just let all the employers out there know uh, that breastfeeding is essential to the mother and baby's health. And if that's what she chooses, we need to make sure we're supporting her in doing that. Second of all, pumping is no picnic. It's not like we're having fun when we go and take a break from work to pump, we're, we're taking a break from our employer-paid work to now go do work of producing food. It's also work. It's not an actual break. And I actually think that we should rephrase that. Um, it's not a pumping break uh, because it's it's just time to pump. It's not a break. There's no break happening. Uh, and in fact, it could be a very, very stressful time for a lot of women. So I love the way that Lindsay phrases this. She comes out really strong and nice and assertive in in her phrasing in this op-ed. And she says, penalizing a woman financially for providing the best nutrition to our future generations, either by withholding pay, refusing to financially compensate those who must take time off during their workday in order to pump milk, or by making work outside the home so onerous that she is forced to choose between her job and her ability to provide breast milk for her child is a matter of gender, racial, and economic justice. Bam. You killed it, Lindsay. That, that's it right there. So anyway, um, she's got a community-based uh, organization uh, called Yellowhammer Fund. They've got partner organizations, um, and they're basically trying to fill in the gaps to help these working mothers support their children, uh, both financially and nutritionally, and she's asking the legislature to match their efforts. So way to go. Alabama's got an awesome advocate. Um, if you live in Alabama, I would definitely... Uh, connect with Lindsay and and see what you can do there to help her advocacy efforts because honestly she's doing great. So that article, I mean, wow, so well written. Thank you for that, Lindsay. Um, okay, now this is one from the American Academy of Pediatrics. This is from February twenty third. This is from a global perspective, but I like to bring the global perspective in, even though I live in the U.S. and probably most of you listening live in the U.S. as well. Um, But they're talking about sub-Saharan child mortality. What is the global cost of not exclusively breastfeeding? Uh, And so they look at uh, mortality of children under age five in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, It's uh, the rates of that mortality in the 43 countries that comprise sub-Saharan Africa are the highest in the world. They average 78 per thousand live births. Uh, And what they state is that uh, they want to reduce that rate to 25 per thousand births, um, which is a reduction of 70% of under age five mortality. So that's a really, really big goal. Uh, And what we do know is that for every 10% increase in the prevalence of exclusive breastfeeding, the rate of under age five mortality would decrease 
by about 5.6 per thousand children. So this could make a huge, huge difference uh, for, you know, the health outcome for these infants. So really great. Um, I love that, you know, they're actually looking at some concrete numbers there because it really absolutely does matter. And uh, it's a really, really important issue. So with that, uh, I am going to end this episode and just say thank you so much for listening. This has been another episode of This Week in Breastfeeding, and that summed up kind of the breastfeeding news uh, around the world that I happen to think was relevant to you, the listener. If there's anything, uh, a specific topic that you've found out about or that you'd like me to cover or any sort of guest you'd like to have on the podcast, let me know. Um, you know, Send me an email, hello at holisticlactation.com or send me a message over on Instagram at holisticlactation. And uh, until next time, I will talk to you on the next episode of Breastfeeding Talk. Have a great day. Did you know most moms stop breastfeeding in the first month postpartum? I believe succeeding at breastfeeding means having the right mindset. In fact, studies show that the number one factor that determines breastfeeding success is commitment, which is why I've created my incredible audio download of breastfeeding affirmations, where I give you actionable mantras so you can breastfeed your baby with confidence and peace of mind. And best of all, it's free. To get access to this audio and PDF, simply visit holisticlactation.com slash mantras and you can get started right now.